Good morning once again. If you've joined us since we began the service, my name is Michael Rankins. I'm a member of the church here at Lake Merced Church of Christ, and we are just so glad that you've come to be with us this morning for our online service. Those of you who are seeing me for the first time are probably noticing a number of things. And so I want to ask you the question, what do you see when you look at me? Probably the most obvious thing is I'm a human being. All of us are that, right? But you probably also have noticed that I'm a man. Well, the facial hair gives that away. And by the surroundings that I'm in, you've probably determined that I'm a Christian. And of course, that is true. I have been that the entirety of my life. You may also have noticed, however, if you're astute, that I'm a person of color. And more specifically, that I am, by birth and by heritage, African-American. Now, some people like to get real technical about it and say that I'm actually biracial because one of my biological parents was Caucasian and one of my biological parents was African-American, but I was adopted as an infant by two African-American parents who raised me the entirety of my childhood, and I have always identified and have been identified by society as an African-American. So that's the perception with which, which I live. Now, it's true for me as is true for all of us. Every aspect of my life experience shapes me. Of course, personhood shapes all of us, but the fact that I am a man has shaped my experience and the way that things have happened to me in my life. The fact that I've been a Christian from the time that I was very young has shaped many things about my life experience. And most certainly the fact that I'm a person of color and specifically that I'm African American has shaped my experience, particularly in the society in which we live. We are very conscious today, particularly because of some of the things that are going on in our society. We're very conscious today of race and of racism and of its effect on our society and on individuals and the way that we interact with one another. And I can certainly share with you that the reality of racism has been something that has impacted my life experience. Now, I have been very blessed and can say that the experience of racism in my life has been perhaps much, much less than many other people of color in, in our society. But that is not to say that it has been without impact. From the time that I was very young, I learned to be conscious of the fact that racism exists in our society. Can tell you a little story. My adoptive parents, around the time that I was born, were worshiping at a church in Michigan, a church not unlike the place where we are today. And that congregation invited a very well-known preacher of the gospel, a man who many old-timers in the Church of Christ, if I mentioned his name, would immediately recognize who that individual was. And that man came to preach at the church where my parents worshipped uh, for a, a, a series of week-long meetings. And as was the custom then and in many places now that when a guest preacher came to town that 
Members of the congregation invited him into their homes for, for dinner as a, as a way of welcoming and thanking him for his time and a way to get to know the guest preacher who was visiting with them. But on this particular occasion, when it was my parents' turn to host the visiting preacher, he came to my parents' house and he refused to eat the food that my mother had prepared. He made the statement, I've never eaten with colored people and I never will. And hearing that story from the time that I was very young helped me to realize the impact of racism on the lives of my parents. And as I grew up and had experiences of my own, I came to understand even better how that felt. I can tell you that when my first, late first wife and I were first married, I got a job in a mid-sized city in the California Central Valley. And the two of us went to look for an apartment to rent prior to our getting married. We went to several apartment complexes that had apartments for rent, had advertisements in the paper, had signs in the window with apartments for rent. But place after place that we tried to get an apartment, no one would rent us a place to live. It was only when my then fiance, who was Caucasian, went in by herself to the apartment office and made application for an apartment that we were able to rent a place to live. Now this isn't, you know, a century ago in the Deep South. This is 30 years ago right here in California. And we had that experience. I had the experience not long after we were married of going to preach for a small congregation where I had been recommended as, as a guest preacher by uh, some people who knew me as well as new members of that particular church. But the person who had recommended me hadn't mentioned the fact that I was African American. And when I arrived on that Sunday morning, let's just say it was the most difficult experience of worship that I have ever had in my entire life. Twice in my life, I have been threatened, not just with violence, but with threat of death for no other reason than the color of my skin. And in fact, just a couple of years ago, my, my current wife and I were at Disneyland and we went out uh, to eat at a restaurant not far from, from Disneyland. And we were seated next to a, a group of young men who spent the entire evening trying to intimidate us. They didn't succeed in intimidating me, but my wife was in tears by the time we left that restaurant. Again, just a couple of years ago, right here in California. So the problem of racism is with us and it's real. But here's something we need to understand. The problem of racism is not new. It's not unique to our society. And it is not new to the world in which we live. In fact, we can go all the way back to the Old Testament, to the book of Numbers, and find 
a very real story of racial conflict. In the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 12, we find that Moses, whom we all know was the leader of the Israelite people following their exodus from Egypt, Moses came into contact, conflict with his brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, and Miriam specifically. And we're told in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, that Miriam and Aaron began to speak against Moses because he had married a Cushite woman. Now we would ask, well, what does that mean? What is a, a Cushite woman? Well, the Cushites were African people. They were the inhabitants of what we would recognize today as the Horn of Africa, where the countries of Ethiopia and Eritrea and Somalia and Djibouti are today, as well as the southern Nile Valley, the Sudan and the very southern portion of Egypt. These were African people. They were black people, as we would use that phrase today. And Miriam took offense at the fact that her brother had married one of these people. And she spoke against him publicly because he had married a Cushite woman. God was so angry with Miriam that if we continue to read there in Numbers chapter 12, we find that God struck Miriam with leprosy, a disease, we're told, that turned her skin as white as snow. God has an interesting sense of irony, does he not? Miriam took offense to the fact that her brother married a woman who was black. God transformed her skin by means of disease to being white as snow. Gives us a sense, does it not, of how God fought about the way that Miriam treated her brother and his wife. We also have to understand, though, as old as the story of Moses and Miriam is, that we as Christians today remain challenged by our own, not only experience of racism, but our own feelings of racism. And these are something that all of us, regardless of our background or our color or our heritage, wrestle with in dealing with people who are different from ourselves, whatever that difference might be. And so it's important that we ask ourselves, particularly that we ask ourselves as people of Christ, how do I interact with people that I perceive as different from myself? An even more basic question, what motivates me to see other people as different? When I look at you, do I look at you and see not you as the person that you are, but do I see the things that make us different? And why do I do that? And how do I manage my reactions and the actions that come out of those reactions in light of what God's Word teaches. Well, in this, as in many things, I like to ask myself the question, what did Jesus do in these situations? You know, oftentimes people like, and it was a very, uh, a very common thing a few years ago for people to ask the question, 
What would Jesus do? You know, WWJD. But the fact of asking that question in that way always kind of annoys me a little bit. Because it presumes that we have to wonder, what would Jesus do? Or we have to speculate about what would Jesus do. In fact, in, the, in most of the cases where we would want to examine the actions of Jesus, we're told exactly what Jesus did in certain situations. And certainly, when it comes to the issue of dealing with people who are different, we can look at Jesus' actions in the New Testament and see exactly what he did. Most of us are familiar with the parable that we refer to quite often as the parable of the Good Samaritan. The story that Jesus told about a, a Jewish man who was traveling between two cities on a deserted road and was assaulted by robbers who stole his property, beat him severely, and left him for dead by the side of the road. And as the man lay there, a priest of the Jewish faith came walking by. And rather than stop to assist his fellow traveler who was clearly in need, Jesus said the priest walked by on the other side of the road. And presently a Levite, and now the Levites were the, the, the tribe of Israelites who served in the temple, who were in charge of assisting in the worship. A Levite came by and saw the wounded traveler lying there. And like the priest before him, he passed by on the other side of the road. But later a Samaritan came by. And Jesus uses the Samaritan for a reason because you see the Samaritans were a people that the Jewish people despised. The Samaritans were a people and I identify very much with the Samaritans because I also am a person of mixed heritage. The Samaritans were a people of mixed background. They had some Jewish heritage and they had some Canaanite heritage. That is to say that some of their bloodline went back to the people who occupied the land before the Israelites arrived from Egypt. So they were a, a people of mixed heritage. And as such, the Israelites, the Jewish people, looked down on them, thought they were half human at best and wanted nothing at all to do with them, wanted no interaction with the Samaritans. And yet it was a Samaritan Jesus said, who came along the road, saw the wounded traveler, and not only stopped to assist him, but put the man on his own beast of burden, went into the nearest town, found a, 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 a place of lodging, gave money to the innkeeper and said, here, here's money to take care of this man Give, give him everything that he needs. And if you spend more than this, I'll pay you the difference when I come back. And you'll remember that Jesus told that story in response to a question. That one of the teachers of the Jewish law had asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in God's law? And Jesus said, well, there are two. The first is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment that's like it is love your neighbor as yourself. 
And the teacher of the law had asked, well, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus had proceeded to tell this story. And at the conclusion of it, he looked at the man and he asked him, of the three people who saw the traveler, which was the one who was neighbor to him? And the man said, well, I, I suppose the one that helped him. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. It's not by accident that Jesus chose a Samaritan, a person of despised heritage as far as the Jews were concerned, to be the hero of that story, to be the embodiment of what being a good neighbor was. We also see in John the fourth chapter, Jesus having a personal interaction with a Samaritan woman. We find Jesus and his disciples traveling through the region of Samaria. They stopped at a well that many, many decades ago had been dug by Jacob himself. And Jesus stayed by the well as his disciples went on into town to, to gather provisions. And while he sat there by the well, a Samaritan woman came. And Jesus began a conversation with her by making a simple request. Can I, can I have a drink? Because he had nothing to get water from the well with. And the woman was astounded that here was a Jewish man who was going to actually not only speak to, but ask a favor from her, a Samaritan woman. But that simple request began a conversation about the meaning of salvation, about the living water that Jesus had come into the world to bring. And that conversation was so powerful that at its conclusion, the woman ran into town and went through the streets, accosting everyone that she saw, saying, I've met a man who told me everything I ever did. I think he's the Christ. And all the people from the town came to where Jesus was to see and meet this man that the woman had encountered. Because Jesus took the opportunity to converse with a woman who was different from himself, an entire town full of people came to know who he was and had the opportunity to learn about living water. In Luke, the seventh chapter, there's an interesting story that we're told there about a man who was a centurion of the Roman army. Now, you have to understand that at this point in time, the Jewish people were being subjugated by the Roman Empire. That the Romans ruled over the Jewish people in, by means of martial law. That they actually had soldiers overseeing the towns to make sure that the Jews did not rise up against their Roman oppressors. And living under martial law, living with soldiers walking through your streets and controlling your actions was, was not a fun way to live, certainly. But here was a man who was a centurion in the Roman army, a leader of that army, one who had authority over at least a hundred men. That's what the word centurion means. But he had a servant who was very ill and sick to the point of death. 
And the centurion sent a message by means of some Jewish associates to Jesus saying, here's a, here's a man who has a servant who is ill and is about to die and he would love it if you would come to his house and, and heal the servant. And Jesus said, I will come. And they immediately began to go to the man's house. But as they began to approach, the centurion sent a messenger out to say to Jesus, please don't come in the house. I'm not worthy for you to come in my house. He said, I understand what authority means because I am subject to authority myself as a soldier and I have soldiers who are subject to me. If I say to one, go, he goes. If I say to one, come, he comes. If I say to one, do something, he does it. And he said, but I understand the authority that you have, Jesus. And I don't find myself worthy of having you come into my house, but please just say the word. And I know that my servant will be healed. And Jesus, hearing those words, said, I've not found faith like this, even in Israel. Even among my own people, Jesus said, I've not found faith like the faith of this foreigner this soldier, this, this person whose job it is to oppress our people has more faith than many of my own people. And he sent the messenger back to the house and said, go. It's been done as he asks. And indeed the servant was made well. Jesus could easily have rejected that request. Jesus could easily have said, who are you, a Roman an oppressor of my people, one whose job it is to put his boot at the back of the neck of my brothers and sisters, who are you to ask anything of me? But instead, Jesus looked at the man's heart and saw his faith and did as he asked. You know, there's a similar story in Mark, the seventh chapter, where Jesus is staying at a house in the city of Tyre. And a woman who was Greek by heritage, a woman from Syrian Phoenicia, came into the house to plead with Jesus because her little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit, she said. And she believed that Jesus could drive the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus' response to this woman is, is kind of interesting. He says to her, first let the children eat all they want. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now what did Jesus mean by that? Well, you see, Jesus understood how his Jewish companions looked at this Greek woman. They looked at this woman, this foreigner, as though she was no better than a dog. And he realized how offended they would be that he would take power that rightly belonged to them because he was their king, their Messiah, their Christ, and share it with this, this foreign woman who was little better than a dog. 
That comment was for their words and for their ears, not for hers. And also because Jesus knew her heart. And he knew how she would respond. And she responded exactly the way he knew she would. She said, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. Lord, I know about my position relative to yours. And I'm not asking a great thing. I just want just to have the crumbs that fall from the table. And Jesus told her for such a reply, it is as you asked, the demon has left your daughter. It would have been so easy for Jesus to adopt the mindset of his companions and say to this woman, you're a dog, get out of here. But instead, he used that as a learning opportunity for them to see that a person they regarded as less than human had faith that Jesus respected and honored such that he would accede to her request. What are the lessons that we learn from the things that Jesus did in these instances that we've mentioned in our lesson? Well, from the Good Samaritan, we learn that Jesus used one that his disciples, as well as the people around them, would have seen as other. And he used that individual as the compassionate hero of his story. Because he wanted them to see that even when a person like themselves did not show godly character, even two who might be expected to be so because they were religious leaders, that instead one that they disregarded, one that they thought was only perhaps half human, the Samaritan becomes the hero of the story. He's the one who is neighbor and shows love to the man who was injured. From the woman at Jacob's well, we see that Jesus embraced rather than rejected. He used his opportunity to interact with the Samaritan woman, not to condemn her for who she was or for what she'd done, but instead to share with her the good news of salvation, rather than shunning her as his disciples might have expected that he would do. From the centurion, we see that Jesus didn't judge an individual by the exterior of their life. He didn't judge the centurion on the fact that he was a Roman, that he was a foreigner, even that he was an oppressor of Jesus' own people. But instead, instead he looked at the man's heart and saw the genuineness of his faith and embraced him because of that. And for the Greek woman from Syrian Phoenicia, we see that Jesus found reason to give rather to, than to withhold. Because when that woman said, even the dogs 
are allowed to eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. You know what she was really saying? She was saying Greek lives matter. She was saying Syrophoenician lives matter. And Jesus, by giving her what she asked and healing her daughter, proved that she was right. That even though the rest of the people in that house might not have thought that her life mattered, to Jesus it did. Because he saw beyond the exterior. If we're going to overcome, not for our society, but for ourselves as individuals, the challenges that we face in dealing with people who are different than ourselves, the one thing that we're going to have to learn to do is to look at other people and see them the way that Jesus does. Not see people by their exterior. Not see people as a, a man or a woman, as an American or a foreigner, or as white or black or Asian or Native American or any of the other ways that we divide and dissect ourselves one from another but to look at one another as Jesus sees us, as people for whom he gave his life. In 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, in the 14th verse, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, the love of Christ compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. For though we once regarded Christ in that way, we do so no longer. And that's our challenge, friends. To not look at each other from a worldly point of view. Not to see each other because of the exterior factors that separate us and divide us. But when I look at you, I need to look at you as one for whom Christ died, just as he died for me. And you need to look at me in that exact same way. And I will suggest to you that if we look at ourselves through that lens, through the lens of Christ's vision, and see each and every person that we encounter, regardless of their, their racial background, their ethnicity, their language, their citizenship, their socioeconomic status, regardless of any of those external things, but if we just look at one another and see another soul for whom Jesus, the Son of God, gave his life. We can overcome those visceral reactions we sometimes have when we interact with people that we think are different from ourselves. And see that in the most important thing of all, we are not different. That we are all people for whom Jesus died. 
Paul again would say in Colossians, the third chapter in the 11th verse, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. When we look at one another, we need to see the Christ that is there. Because that's what Christ sees when he looks at each of us. I asked you at the beginning of the lesson, what do you look at, what do you see when you look at me? I'll tell you what Christ sees. He sees one for whom he died. And that's exactly what he sees when he looks at you. And that's how we need to look at each other. I hope this lesson has provoked some thought for you. I hope it has perhaps challenged you to think differently about the people that you encounter. And I hope that as you go through your week this week, as you come into contact with people from hopefully a, a socially appropriate distance, that you will try to tune your mind to look at people and not see how different they are from you. Or even see whether they are alike in some respects to you. But rather to see everyone that you look at and see a person for whom Christ died, a person who needs the good news of the gospel of salvation and the good news of eternal life that is ours in Jesus Christ. Think about that this week, and I pray that you're blessed by this lesson.